chance to win it right here. Special for Carr. Off the bounce. Big time. That car will drive. Are you kidding me? This is Niederreiter holding on to it. And he scores. Nino Niederreiter wins the series for the Minnesota Wild. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Now he fires over the middle. Intercepted. I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. It was intercepted by Tracy Porter. Near side to the 40. And John Sullivan runs him down at the 47-yard line. You've got to be kidding me. I can't believe what I just saw. That strike three from Presley. And the Astros win it 3-1. to one, And they sweep the wild card series. Two games to none. Holding the Twins offense completely in check. With the sixth pick in the 2009 NBA draft, the Minnesota Timberwolves select Johnny Flynn from Syracuse University. Heartbreaking losses, questionable wins, and unquestionable fandom. This is your source for Minnesota sports talk. This is Land of 10,000 Tears with your host, Brett Lindbergh. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Lindbergh, and I am your host for Land of 10,000 Tears. It's been a little while since I made an episode, so we're giving it a try today. There's a lot to talk about. I'm currently watching the Twins. They're playing Detroit. They have a lead 12-1, so I will recap the end of that towards the end of this episode. There's a lot going on. Nelson Cruz has two home runs. He's got five RBIs, one run scored. He's three for three today. It's the sixth inning at the moment. Miguel Sano's at the plate, runner on third, and they walked him. So it's first and third, two outs. Detroit's throwing Derek Holland. The Twins brought Matt Shoemaker to the mound. He went four and two-third innings of no-hit baseball, and then he gave up a homer to give up his first run, and then he gave up two more hits after that. But he's gone five innings, so he's going to get the win. I'm sure the Twins are going to go to the bullpen here. Uh, The Twins might get some runs, but I'm not going to continue talking Twins right now because I've got Wild to talk about. I've got Wolves, some Gopher basketball news, the Final Four, and obviously some other Twins games to talk about over the last couple of days. There's a hit by Ryan Jeffers. That brings in a run, making it 13-1. to Today's episode is brought to you by Skydive Twin Cities. It's a new sponsor. Season's open. If you want to skydive and you're in the metropolitan area, that is the place to go. That's in Baldwin, Wisconsin. It's an awesome place. You'll have an awesome time. Skydive Twin Cities where the sky is always blue and there's no cloud in sight. All right, I want to get to some Minnesota Timberwolves news because I've got three games to cover along with a preview of tonight's game against the Kings. Last week, Wednesday, they went up against the New York Knicks and it was an interesting game. Because the Knicks are not really a bad team, honestly. And we all know that Minnesota is capable of playing good basketball, so it's kind of just what team shows up. Malik Beasley is back, like I had said in the last episode, and we're still waiting on D'Angelo Russell. So it's really just the Carl Anthony Towns show, along with some Anthony Edwards in there, and he's really fun to watch. That's really the main reason why I tune in. So let's get to the box score. Carl Anthony Towns with 18 points, 17 rebounds, 6 assists. That's a pretty good night. Only 2 of 7 from 3, but 17 rebounds. That impacts the game a lot. And Jaden McDaniels with 18 points. You don't see that every night. Edwards with 24, Beasley with 20. He shot 8 threes and made 5 of them, so that's a pretty good percentage. Giving him 20 points. Nobody else in the double digits, but that's a pretty good showing. You look at the Knicks, 
You got a good showing from Julius Randle with 26 and 12. R.J. Barrett had 23. Alfred Payton with 17 and Alec Burks with 13. So looking like this game was probably a close one and let's get into the team stats. Field goal percentage, the Knicks outperformed them at 48% versus 41%. Wolves got outshot at the three-point line as well, 48% versus 35%. Free throw line, the Wolves got the advantage 84 to 71. Knicks turned the ball over 17 times. Wolves only turned it over 12 times. Wolves with more assists, just about even in rebounds. So Based on that, you could tell this was a close game. So during the fourth quarter, with 8 minutes and 34 seconds left, the Knicks were up 13 with a 95.4% to win the game. Then the Wolves finished on a 25-11 run to win by one, and Malik Beasley hit a three to seal the game. It was pretty exciting. I watched it, and granted, I wasn't cheering for them to win because I've gone over this a thousand times, but you know... Sometimes they got to win. They're going to win. So you can at least embrace that. So let's fast forward two more days to Friday when they went over to Memphis to play the Grizzlies. Carl and Anthony Towns with 30 points, 16 rebounds, one of eight from three. So that's the part of the game that wasn't so great. Anthony Edwards had 22 points. He was two of three from the field on three-point attempts. And then the only other double-digit scorer was Nas Reed with 18. 5 of 7 from the field, 2 of 2 from 3. So the Wolves not necessarily bringing their A game on offense. They totaled 108 points. You look at the Grizzlies. This was a weird game because none of them had great nights, but they had 8 players in double digits. So you can imagine that the Wolves weren't playing all that great defense. Let's look at the team box score. They were pretty much even on field goal percentage, but Memphis shot way better from three. They were near 50% Wolves at their typical 36%. Wolves shot way better at the free throw line, 87% versus 68%. Even on turnovers, close on assists. Memphis out-rebounded them by a ton, 14 of those being offensive. This game was a two-point game at the half, Memphis being ahead by two. But then Minnesota started very slow, only scoring 18 points in the third quarter. And they made it up for it in the fourth, but it was honestly too much. They lost 120 to 108. I guess that's okay. You can't win them all. Got to lose some games. Memphis isn't that good, though, so that's a little bit surprising. So then we fast forward to Saturday. And the Wolves were in action against the 76ers, who are tied for first place in the Eastern Conference. And Joel Embiid was coming back. Wolves still don't have D'Angelo Russell. I'm sure that'll happen sometime soon, but they don't at the moment. Philly is an interesting team to match up against the Wolves because in the past, there's been some bad blood between Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns. So I was fully prepared as a fan to see these guys go at it. And besides Carl Anthony Towns, the Wolves don't really bolster a lot of height and length, whereas Philadelphia does. Obviously, Simmons is about 6'10", Tobias Harris is 6'9", and then obviously Joel Embiid is like 7'3". So they have some length, and the Wolves' second tallest player on the court was Jaden McDaniels, and he's 6'9", but he's a rookie, so if you put him on Tobias Harris, it might not be the best matchup. But that's not what they did. They put Josh Okogi, who's 6'4", on Tobias Harris, so you could probably imagine how that went. Tobias Harris had 32 points, but he was the leading scorer for them. Joel Embiid had 24, so not the best night, but obviously it didn't really matter. Carl Anthony Towns had 39, 14, and 5 
with an absolute poster dunk on Embiid. So I'm sure that felt good. And Anthony Edwards had 27. He was 10 of 23 from the field, 3 of 7 from 3. A pretty good game, but they didn't really get a whole lot of help from anybody else. And Malik Beasley didn't play, so that didn't really bode well. Wolves end up losing 122-113. You look at some of the totals for this game. Wolves getting outshot barely, 51-45% to total. Philadelphia shot 43%. Wolves shot their typical low 30s. Free throw percent, Wolves are always good, but I feel like they're always in games that are more than two or three possessions, so free throws not necessarily making that big of a difference. And Philadelphia had more assists and more rebounds, so I guess I understand why Philadelphia won, and Philadelphia, like I said before, is in first place in the Eastern Conference, so I get it. The Wolves are in action tonight against the Sacramento Kings, and I want to see the standings here because Sacramento over the past couple years has not really been a very good team, and they're in the Western Conference. But the Kings are in the 12th spot right now, and as we all know, all you have to do is finish in the 10th spot in order to compete for a playoff spot. So maybe the Kings are a team that might actually try to make a push. They are one game out of the 10th spot, so they could actually make a run at it. They'd have to start winning some games here to actually distance themselves. But honestly, more surprising than I thought because I thought Sacramento was ready to just mail it in. Wolves still in last place. They're about a game and a half ahead of the Rockets in the Western Conference, and they are at least two games behind Detroit in the East. So still in the place they need to be. I'm hoping that they can distance themselves a little bit, but I'm really not sure that's going to happen. I don't anticipate the Wolves to win tonight, although they easily could. You look at talent top to bottom, and Minnesota might have them, honestly, but they don't play very good defense. And it's gotten better under Chris Finch, but it's still got a long ways to go. So I don't know. I kind of hope that they don't win. And obviously you guys know that I'm going to stick with the basketball talk really quick because there's some gopher basketball news to talk about. Head coach Ben Johnson is accessing the transfer portal. He's reaching out to players in the portal, trying to get them to come back. A lot of them being Minnesota kids who are at smaller schools and honestly are showing out. And now they might actually have a chance to play at the higher levels. And so He reached out to Luke Lowe of William & Mary, who's averaging about 16 points per game, and he was leading his team in three-point shooting percentage, and he was also all-defensive team in his conference. So getting a 3-and-D player will definitely be a good thing to pair with Jamison Battle. Both of those guys shoot the three well. And obviously, I had told you before that the Gophers were awful at shooting the three this past season. Another player that they got to commit E.J. Stevens from Lafayette University. I think that's over on the East Coast. He was averaging about 16 points per game as well. So getting these smaller school guys to come in and potentially play might be the move right now because, honestly, everybody's leaving Minnesota. The most recent player to announce he's entering the transfer portal was Gabe Kelscher. Kelscher not having the best season so far this year and last year up until his broken wrist injury. I honestly wish that he would stay, though, because he's going to be coached by an old De La Salle player, and that's where he went to high school, too. So I'm sure there's some relationship there. I don't really know why he would be leaving. Personally, I don't really think most of these guys that are leaving will have much of a better opportunity to play elsewhere. If they do, I think they'll have to go to a lower-tier conference. And hey, if that's for them, good for them, I guess. But 
Gopher's making some moves. That's three guys who have committed under Ben Johnson since the hiring. I know he's not done yet because honestly, I think there's only like five or six players on the roster as of right now, and you definitely need more for depth and for foul purposes. So that's the update on Gopher basketball. There's definitely more to come in the near future. I'll let you know how it goes. So once again, sticking with the basketball theme, the final four happened this past weekend and set the table for the championship game tonight. So let's unpack that. The first game, we saw Baylor versus Houston. A lot of people were saying that these teams were very similar. It's a battle of two Texas teams, something you don't typically see. Both teams are known for their fast-paced play and their solid defense. Baylor probably being better at both, but you still have to play the game. We're not just going to pencil Baylor in, although maybe you should have because Houston didn't really keep it close. If you look at the team totals, Baylor finished better in almost every major category that mattered. So you look at field goal percentage, Baylor shot 53%. Houston shot 38. You look at three points percentage. Baylor shot 46%. Houston shot 32. They were even on free throws. Baylor had less turnovers. Baylor had more assists. They had 13 more assists. That's a ton. They had five more rebounds. And then when you look at the individual scoring, Baylor had some guys that were in double digits. Five of them to be exact. Davion Mitchell with 12. Jared Butler with 17. Macy Oteague with 11. Matthew Mayer had 11. You get the picture. They scored a lot of points. So Baylor wins this game 78-59, to and that set the table for the Gonzaga versus UCLA game, which was highly anticipated for a lot of reasons. There were a ton of storylines going into this game, whether it was the fact that UCLA was an 11 seed and they played in the first four, that Gonzaga's beaten every single team this season by double digits and they're still continuing that role and the fact that they're undefeated. It could have been the fact that the Pac-12 had done so well in this tournament and that UCLA was one of the biggest surprises. I mean, they bolstered players that nobody had even heard of up until the tournament, like Jules Bernard or Johnny Juzang or Jaime Jaquez or Tiger Campbell. That's a good name. All these kids that I honestly had no idea who they were. And then you look at the other side and they've got guys that are just decorated with awards like Drew Timmy and Jalen Suggs. And don't forget about Corey Kispert who got All-American honors. Like Gonzaga is stacked as well. So like I said, a ton of storylines. And for the most part, everybody pays attention to the lowest seed left in the tournament. And that's UCLA who is an 11 seed because the other teams are one seed, one seed, and two seed. So naturally, they were going to watch this game. Gonzaga was favored by 14 and a half points, and everybody thought UCLA could potentially even win this game. It was honestly a David versus Goliath matchup, and in order for UCLA to win, they'd have to continue playing well, and Gonzaga's played well all year. So essentially what we had was two teams that are playing great basketball, and something's got to give. Will Gonzaga's awesome winning streak continue? Would UCLA continue on their Cinderella run? I think there are a lot of people who are hoping so, so let's get into it. The first half was crazy. There were a ton of points put up. It was a one-point game at the half, and I'm sure there were a lot of doubters thinking that Gonzaga would just blow them out because UCLA, on paper, doesn't belong with them. Well, Gonzaga was only up by one point at the half, and I don't think they panicked because, I mean, it's Gonzaga. They have a massive winning streak. They played teams close, pulled away at the end. So it was really just what was going to happen in the second half. 
and it was not as high scoring in the second half. There were fouls, and both teams tightened up on the defensive end. And both teams having meaningful players in foul trouble. Gonzaga had Drew Timmy in foul trouble, and for UCLA, it was Jules Bernard who was in foul trouble. So UCLA missing one of their best three-point shooters, and then Gonzaga missing one of their best players. This was honestly one of the best games I've ever watched, and at one point I said to my dad that I thought this game was going to be scored in the 90s. It turns out I was right, but it did take an overtime period to get there. And I want to read off the box score before I get to how it ended. For Gonzaga, Kispert, 15 points, 2 of 8 from 3, so he didn't shoot very well. Nemhard had 11. Ayayi had 22. Suggs with 16, 2 of 5 from 3. That's important to note. Drew Timmy had 25, 11 of 15 from the field, and he had four fouls for most of the game. Then for UCLA, it was all Juzang. He had 29 points, but Hawkes had 19, Campbell had 17, Riley had 14. For about four of the last six minutes of the game, you didn't see Jules Bernard, and you didn't see Drew Timmy. But when it mattered most, those guys were on the floor. Let's fast forward to about the last 40 seconds of the game, because Gonzaga had the ball, and the shot clock would indicate that UCLA would get a chance regardless of what happened. So it was a tie game, and Gonzaga had the ball. They put up a shot, and they miss. And by the time UCLA grabbed the rebound, the shot clock was no longer a factor. So they could take it down to zero to win the game. So they gave it to Johnny Juzang. And Drew Timmy's on the court with four fouls, and both teams are in the bonus. So Johnny Juzang, dribbling out the clock, hanging out around three-point line, decides to make his move. He gets a screen, he drives to the lane, and from my perspective, it looked like he was going to stop and pop middle of the lane because it appeared that he had a good look. But instead, he tried to get to the rim. Drew Timmy, standing under the basket, gets his feet set, apparently. I'm not going to argue it. He gets his feet set, sets up to take a charge. Juzang plows into him. They both fall to the ground, and they call an offensive foul. There's about .7 seconds left on the clock. Luckily, UCLA was not in the bonus, because if they were, that would have sent them to the line. But how crazy is that? One, Drew Timmy has four fouls. If that gets called a foul, he fouls out. But even crazier is that they would have gone to the line with .7 seconds to go, and you have their best player shooting one-and-one free throws. It was a very gutsy play by Drew Timmy, but it could have ended tragically for Gonzaga and ultimately could have ended their perfect season. But because it was called offensively, it was called on Yuzang, and Gonzaga got the ball with .7 seconds. Ultimately, nothing came of that, and the game headed to overtime. So in overtime, Drew Timmy was huge. He had eight points. And for the first couple of minutes, it looked like Gonzaga might actually pull away. But just like UCLA had done in every single game prior, made it close. Johnny Juzang came up clutch for him. Jaime Jaquez hit a three in order to cut the game to two points. And then we had a very similar situation with about a minute to go. We've got Gonzaga up by two. So regardless of what happens, UCLA is going to get the ball back. If Gonzaga scores, UCLA is going to try to go down and score and then try to get a steal and ultimately try to foul. If Gonzaga misses, that means UCLA gets the ball and they have a chance to tie it or win it. So Gonzaga goes down, and they have to put up a shot, and they do, and they miss. And UCLA grabs a rebound. So they now have the ball as the clock is ticking down with a chance to tie it or take the lead. 
Essentially, they did the same thing. They gave it to Johnny Juzang. They let him dribble around, take some time off the clock. He ultimately gets around the screen, puts up a shot, misses, hits front iron, grabs the rebound, gets right back to the rim, which ties the game at 90. There's 3.7 seconds left. UCLA feels amazing. They just tied the game. All they got to do is get a stop, and they're going to double overtime. 3.7 seconds left. Gonzaga enters the ball. Jalen Suggs drives 40 feet just past half court, puts up a shot, and it seems like there is absolutely zero chance that this ball is going to go in. But in the same sentence, it looks pretty good. And watching it unfold live, you're wondering, why didn't they take a timeout? Did they have a play? What are they doing? And then the shot hits the backboard, and then it drops through the hoop. And there's zero seconds on the clock, and Gonzaga goes crazy. UCLA sitting there like, did that really just go in? How could our season have just ended that way? It makes no sense. Why would an 11 seed who played on the first night of the tournament get to the Final Four and lose in that fashion to the best team in college basketball? Why is it that the best team also got the best luck? It makes no sense. But it was honestly the best ending you've ever seen in a college basketball game. Jalen Suggs sees it go in, jumps up in elation, runs to the table, jumps up on it like Kobe Bryant, like Dwayne Wade. And honestly, regardless of who you wanted to win, you felt satisfaction because the game was played to the highest degree with an amazing ending. I don't know what more you can ask for. Granted, unless you're a UCLA fan, but honestly, nobody had expected them to make it that far anyway. They played a great tournament. They played an awesome game. They probably would have beaten some other teams, but they had to play Gonzaga. And Gonzaga wins, and they roll on to the championship game, setting up an amazing matchup between Gonzaga and Baylor. Two teams that were supposed to play in the regular season, but due to COVID, they weren't able to get that game in. So it honestly seems like destiny. That was a matchup I was really, really excited to see because Baylor had beaten some really great teams like Iowa. They had beaten Kansas. You saw Gonzaga beat Kansas. You saw Gonzaga beat Iowa. So at this point, you're like, hey, this is the number one and number two team in the nation, and I want to see them go up against each other. And we were deprived of that early, but we're not deprived of that now. So that game is tonight. I'm very excited. The ball is scheduled to tip at 8.20 p.m. Central Time on CBS. Gonzaga is favored by four and a half points because they're 31-0. Baylor is 27-2. You could argue Baylor might be the better team. They play in a better conference. That's why they have two losses. Gonzaga doesn't play in a good conference. They have 31 wins and no losses, but they've proven it. I mean, we saw them beat West Virginia. We saw them beat Kansas and hang up 100 points. They hung up 100 points against Iowa. So I don't dispute that. I think they might be the best team, but we're going to find out. So there's some notable players to watch in this game, and I mentioned them earlier, but I'm going to reiterate. For Gonzaga, Corey Kispert, Andrew Nembhard, Jalen Suggs, Drew Timmy, and Joel Ayayi. And then for Baylor, you've got Davion Mitchell, you've got Jared Butler, you've got Macy Oteague, Flo Thamba, Mark Vidal, and Matthew Mayer. How could you forget about him? He's got the awesome mullet. He can shoot the three, he can dunk, he plays great defense. I am very excited. I have no idea who I think is going to win, and I don't care. I don't want to make any predictions. All I want to know is who is the best team in college basketball this year. And we're going to have the answer in a few hours.
When tonight is over, we're going to have that answer, and I'm going to be excited to talk about it. Just a few quick updates before we keep the show rolling. The Twins are ahead 15-1. to It's the top of the ninth. There's two outs, and I believe that's going to be the third out for the Twins, so they've got a half inning, three outs worth to secure the win. That's 15-1. to Twins have done it on 14 hits today, a couple of home runs, and if they win today, that will put them in first place in the American League Central with a record of 3-1. and one. In other news, I just received notification that D'Angelo Russell is playing tonight against the Sacramento Kings, so that's going to be interesting to watch because we have not yet seen a roster with Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, and Anthony Edwards all on the floor. That might be something to watch, although there's definitely better things to watch tonight. You've got the national championship, which is probably what you should watch, but you also have the wild and then you have the Timberwolves. So I guess if there's a commercial, you can check. I'm sure I'm probably going to be panning back and forth with priority on the basketball game, just because it's the last one of the year. So now I want to get into Minnesota wild news. I've got two games to cover and then preview tonight's game against Colorado a very big game tonight, and they played two really important games last week that I got to cover, both against Vegas. So the Wild and the Knights are even at 2-2 for the series so far this season, and there were two games being played back in Vegas, and these are two teams who are jockeying for position in the Western Division along with the Colorado Avalanche, who the Wild play tonight. And as you know, over the last four games against the Knights, the Wild have honestly played better in three of them. One of those games, the Knights looked really good and blew him away. That's fine. So let's get into Thursday's game. By looking at the box score, there isn't a lot that you can tell just by looking at these numbers. Shots on goal, they were even, 37. Faceoffs, they were both right at 50%. The Wild got one goal off of a power play, so 33% by the power play. And then Vegas having four opportunities, but not capitalizing on any of them. Similar in penalty minutes, Vegas won in hits, Wild won in blocks, and then they were even in save percentage. So that would indicate that this game went to overtime. But how did they get there? Well, first period, Vegas gets a goal by William Carlson, assisted by Shea Theodore and Alec Martinez. But then the Wild matched that with a goal by Kirill Kaprizov, assisted by Jordan Greenway and Jonas Brodin. Yes, that is that man, Kirill the Thrill Kaprizov. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. That's my guy. I think that's everybody's guy if you're a Wild fan, but... Nonetheless, nothing happening in the second period, so let's fast forward to the third. Vegas gets a goal early. Braden McNabb assisted by William Carrier. And then a little later on, the Wild get on the power play. And I said this before, they score. Jared Spurgeon assisted by Fiala and Kirill Kaprizov. That ties the game. It enters overtime, and nobody scores. And this is the very rare opportunity that we don't get to see very often a shootout. And it's something that I was really, really excited about because I like our goaltender. And what's better than one-on-one hockey? First to score, followed by two consecutive stops. Very exciting. So the Wild get a goal by Kevin Fiala. And I must say, it was a pretty weak goal, but I'll take it. It was one of those shots where it deflects off the goalie and then it just barely trickles into the net right through his legs. Hey, I'll take it. That was enough for them to get the win. Cam Talbot walled up in that shootout session. Wild get the win 3-2. So they get the win, making it 3-2 Wild Series over those five games. 
and then we head into Saturday night's game. The Wild feeling pretty good about going on the road and getting one, which is what they should have done in the first game against Vegas this year. But Vegas, I'm sure, feeling very hungry to get that game back in order to keep their distance in the standings. So what happened in this one? In the first period, Vegas got out to an early lead. Thomas Nozick assisted by Nicholas Roy and Alex Tuck. Alex Tuck, the former Wild player, I'm going to say it every time. Oh, there's a drive to deep left. That's a homer for Detroit. Akil Badu Grand Slam. Wow. What? Okay. Uh, just so you know, it's 15 to 6 at this point. Sorry. Uh, Randy Dobnak has been brought in twice so far this year after his contract extension, and he's not been great. Obviously, they're still winning by a lot. There's two outs. But, like, dude, why do you got to be that way? Sorry, where were we? Vegas gets an early lead on Saturday night in the first period, and they're playing solid defense. Wild didn't get anything in the first. They didn't get anything in the second. So let's get to the third period where the action starts. Wild get on the power play. Kirill Kaprizov, assisted by Joel Erickson-Eck and Kevin Fiala. Dala dala bill, y'all. Kirill the thrill Kaprizov with a goal, tying the game. And then just after that, we score again. Joel Erickson-Eck, assisted by Jordan Greenway and Ryan Suter. Taking the lead 2-1, ultimately winning the game. The final minute, minute and a half, was super exciting because Vegas did what they always do when they're down, pulled the goalie. Getting the extra attacker out there, really applying the pressure, but Cam Talbot looked good. Let's get to the stats. Vegas just barely edging them out, 28-27 shots on goal. They were even on faceoffs. Wild 1 for 3 on the power play. Vegas 0 for 3 on the power play. Wild are getting better on the power play, just gradually. Equal in penalty minutes. Wild had more hits. They had more blocks. And Cam Talbot had a better save percentage, 96.4 versus 92.6 for Mark andre Fleury. And he continues to lose games to the Minnesota Wild in his career. Very exciting. So where does that put us in the standings? The Wild find themselves in third place in the West Division, 48 total points. Vegas in second with 50 in Colorado with 54. Wild are 23-11-2. Golden Knights are 24-10-2. And, and Avalanche are 25-8-4. And, and you know, you can always talk about ifs. There are a lot of ifs. Like if the Wild wouldn't have lost in overtime against Vegas in game one. Or if they would have beaten San Jose in both games last week. Things would be different if they wouldn't have gotten smoked by Colorado a couple of weeks ago. But with 20 games left in the season, they're in a great spot. Six points back. Two points back a second. I think they can do this, but they have to show it against Colorado. I'm not saying they got to sweep them. Just take one of two. If you sweep them, great. I'll be so excited. But honestly, Colorado's great. The Wild are looking good, but let's tread carefully. Ooh, there it is. Twins get the win. Randy Dobnak buckles down to get the third out. Twins win 15-6. Like I said before, 3-1. and one. First place in the AL Central. I've got three Twins games to talk about from the weekend. But let's preview this Colorado game. The Wild are 1-3 against Colorado this year. And in the last two-game stretch, the Wild were outscored 11-1 in a road trip out to Denver. So things need to change. This game being played in Minneapolis, where they play a lot better, as they are on an 11-game win streak at the XL Energy Center. I'm excited. Hopefully the Wild can keep it up possibly cut a little bit of that gap down in the West Division. 
This is exciting. 20 games left, game tonight, and a game Wednesday against Colorado. What more could you ask for? And then a relatively easy stretch to end the season. So let's buckle in. It's getting to be that time of the year and nothing better than playoff hockey. Before I get to the Twins-Brewers three-game series for opening day, it's time to recognize a sponsor. That is Ted's Pizza Palace, located at 306 Main Street, East Menominee, Wisconsin. Everything they have is good. Just take my word for it. Got a selection of beers and wines, great atmosphere, great food, great service. Taste the homemade difference. That is Ted's Pizza. All right, now it's time to talk about Minnesota Twins versus the Milwaukee Brewers. There were games played Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. There's a ton to talk about. So let's get into Thursday's action. Honestly, I might make myself a little bit mad talking about Thursday's game, but I owe it to you guys as listeners to cover every game. So let's get into it. Twins got off to a hot start. They scored runs in the third inning off of a wild pitch and a Max Kepler single, Jake Cave scoring on the wild pitch, and Miguel Sano scoring, making it 2-0 in the top of the third. But the Brewers came back in the third, getting a run of their own. It was a walk with the bases loaded to bring in a run. So Kenta Maeda getting into a little bit of a jam, but hey, with bases loaded, only giving up one, I guess there's something to be happy about. So let's get to the fourth inning. Luis Arias singles the center field, and Drelton Simmons scores. So they get the run back that they had just given up. It's 3-1, to one, and there's nothing wrong with offering Kenta Maeda a little bit of run support, because that goes a long way with a pitcher like him. But the Brewers got a run back in the fifth inning. Omar Narvaez singles the shallow left field, ultimately bringing in a run, making it 3-2 to two after the fifth. Top seven, Byron Buxton comes to the plate, hits an absolute bomb, 456 feet. Max Kepler scoring on that as well, making it 5-2. So it's looking like the Twins are going to run away with this. And that is where I'm wrong. You get to the bottom of the ninth. And you bring in the closer that you just signed, Alex Colomay, formerly with the White Sox, a guy who throws fastball and cutter, pitches that look the same up until about four feet from the plate. But quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what you throw if it's not in the strike zone. Alex Colomay throws a pitch inside on Colton Wong, ultimately hits him or hits the bat, I guess I don't know, but they ruled it that Colton Wong would get first base. That's what you can't do if you have Christian Yelich coming up in that inning. If there are guys on base, Christian Yelich is going to make you pay. So Yelich comes up to the plate. He's got guys on first and second, and he hits a single. Colton Wong comes in from second, three to five. Well, okay, still up by two. Got to buckle down, get these guys out. Well, what happens? Travis Shaw comes to the plate, hits a double. Both Yelich and Hira score. So the Twins... Blow the game. It's 5-5 after the ninth. This allows the Brewers to go to their bullpen, where they're pretty good. Josh Hader comes in, just mows everybody down. And since it's the new extra inning rules, you get a guy on second. So basically a hit scores them. Or you can bunt them over to third, and then a fly out scores them. You can get creative. It shortens the game quicker. That's kind of what happened. Twins got a guy to third, but it didn't end up mattering because Josh Hader just struck everybody out. Twins put Randy Dobnak up on the mound for the 10th inning, and he didn't look great. He ultimately put a few guys on base, and nice little chopper through the infield ends up scoring Lorenzo Cain, and the Brewers win. And there are a lot of fingers to point, and 
Obviously, I'm a homer for the Twins, but the Twins played way better and lost this game. And if you're a Brewer fan, I really hope that you don't think you deserve that game. Not to be that guy. I don't want to be mean. But honestly, 5-2 to two in the ninth. The only possible outcome if the other team wins is if you choke. And that's what happens. Look at some of the fielding errors. Max Kepler drops the ball. Alex Colome airmails the ball to second, pulls Polanco off the bag, doesn't get the out. Could have got the guy at first. That way, the tying run never comes to the plate. Also, there was a ground ball to first base to Miguel Sano. Fields it throws to second, and Dralton Simmons drops it, which is super uncharacteristic of him to get no outs. So, obviously, there's some plays that the Twins didn't capitalize on, which could have won them this game. And I guess you can say that you're never going to win 162 games, so I guess you lose one, it's whatever. I'm just mad because of the way they lost. I would have way rather they lost 42-0. to Because then it would have been like, huh, well, at least we never really had a shot. I hate the fact that they blew the game. And honestly, this is so characteristic of the Twins. To have a closer, comes in, has a lead, blows the game. It happens. It happens in baseball, but it seems like it happens for the Twins all the time. So the Brewers win the game 6-5 to five in extra innings. I guess, whatever. You got more games to play, there's two more games. But when you lose a game in that fashion, it seems like it just sucks all the momentum away from you. And so the Twins lose that game. And it's very possible that when you lose games this way, you compound it to make it worse going forward because all the momentum's gone. So knowing that they had lost a game that they were ahead for 24 straight outs, pretty demoralizing. But the Twins didn't come out and play bad and feel sorry for themselves on Saturday. That was the best game I've seen so far this season. And I know it's early, but just bear with me. The Twins roll in Jose Barrios up to the mound, who's been a little bit inconsistent from time to time in his career, but he has some awesome pitches. He's got great talent. It's just, which Jose Barrios are we going to see? And the Brewers roll in Corbin Burns up to the mound. And a lot of Brewers fans are really excited about Corbin Burns. Let me just say that this game didn't lack any pitching. It was amazing. The two starters totaled for 23 strikeouts. Corbin Burns had 11. Jose Barrios had 12. Both pitchers pitched six straight innings of no-hit baseball. 11 and 12 strikeouts, respectively. Just crazy. The only two players that got on base over those six innings were because of hit batsmen. Very interesting. Corbin Burns was dealing. I gotta give it up to him. He was nasty. Jose Barrios looked like the Jose Barrios that the twin scouts had identified years ago. He looked amazing. Ultimately, this game came down to one bad pitch by Corbin Burns. It was to Byron Buxton, and he hammered it to right center field for Homer, making it 1-0. And I thought this was really interesting. I don't necessarily disagree, but the Brewers coaching staff ultimately deciding to pull him after giving up one hit which just so happened to be a home run. One hit, one earned, it was a homer. He had a great outing. Six and two-thirds, gave up one home run, gave up one earned. That's a great outing. Jose Brios got pulled after six, so he was on hook for the win, and then the Twins got one more insurance run. Coming from Luis Arias a little bit later on in the game, the Twins went to the bullpen after Brios' six innings, 12 strikeouts on 84 pitches. 55 of them were strikes. Taylor Rogers came in, got an out, got three strikeouts. Tyler Duffy came in, gave up one hit, one walk, two Ks, got out of the inning, 
and then they went to Alex Colome, which is what I like to see because you need to see how he can bounce back from a bad performance. And he came in and he looked good. Although he almost hit Colton Wong again because he was facing the same part of the batting order as he did in the first appearance. But he got it done. Twins won that game 2-0. to zero. Byron Buxton looking great. He's got two homers in two games. At that point, it looks like he's going to hit 162 bombs this year. So the Twins get that win, evening the series 1-1, one to one, setting up a rubber match. Game 3 between Michael Pineda and Adrian Hauser. In this game, the Twins got out to an early lead, 1-0. Max Kepler grounded out to shortstop, ultimately bringing in a run and making it 1-0. Fast forward to the bottom of the second. Brewers get one. Manny Pena out on a sacrifice fly, but scoring Jackie Bradley Jr. to tie the game 1-1. So let's fast forward to the fifth inning. Adrian Hauser giving up a pitch that I'm sure he wants back to Mitch Garver, hitting a home run to opposite field, making it 2-1, and ultimately the reason why Adrian Hauser got pulled. Because then you go to the top of the sixth, they brought in Drew Rasmussen, and he gave up four runs. Max Kepler hit a single through the infield to score Jorge Polanco and Luis Arias, and then right after that, Miguel Sano steps to the plate and hits a bomb, which was also right field. It was honestly a laser beam. That ball barely got out, but it left the park in about two seconds. So that made the game 6-1. to one. Twins looking pretty good at that point. The Brewers got one back in the sixth. Jackie Bradley Jr. hit a solo. But hey, a solo home run when you're up by five is not that big of a deal. That's fine. Making it 6-2. to two. Twins weren't done yet, top of the eighth though. And Drelton Simmons hits a double, scores Jake Cave. Then Nelson Cruz out on a sacrifice fly, but it ultimately brought in the Twins' eighth run of the day. And that was more than enough for the Twins to get the win today. Michael Pineda getting the win, five innings pitched, four hits, one run, no earned, two walks, five Ks, 81 pitches, 57 strikes. Then the Twins went to Cody Stashak, gave up one hit, one run, one earned, one walk, two Ks. Hansel Robles got in on the action. One inning, two strikeouts, 13 pitches, and then the Twins went to Jorge Alcala for two innings, ultimately racking up one strikeout. Ooh, more breaking news. Malik Beasley out three to four weeks. So I guess I was wrong. The Wolves will not have a roster with Carl Anthony Towns, Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, and Anthony Edwards. Literally, you get D'Angelo Russell back and you lose Malik Beasley. Wow. Okay, whatever. Why can't they stay healthy? It's literally like they're not allowed to be healthy at this point. You are not tall enough to ride this ride. I don't get this. Ultimately, it's probably good for the Twins as far as the draft goes, but seriously, why is this happening? I don't have an answer. Okay, let's get back to the baseball. Twins got the win, making them 2-1 and one at that point, winning the series against Milwaukee, and in my opinion, they should have swept them. I'm not going to debate that. It's over with. Whatever. We're done. And then we go to today's game. Twins get the win 15 to 6, and they should have won 15 to 1, but Randy Dobnak gave up 5 runs off of 5 hits. One of them was a grand slam. I guess he got innings, but his ERA is terrible right now. So like I said before, the Twins are ahead 3-1, first place in the division. That's exciting because the White Sox haven't been winning. The Angels have been taking it to them. That's exciting. I'm all in on that. So the standings in the AL Central are as followed. Twins, 3-1. Royals, 2-1. Tigers, 2-2. Indians, 1-2. White Sox, 1-3. You'll love to see it. 
This episode was brought to you by North Coast Craftsmen. Check out what they can do on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Let me tell you, they make a mean wooden table. Great finish, great price. Make sure to give them a try. You won't regret it. That's it for today's episode. Like I said before, there's a lot to watch on TV tonight. You've got the college national championship game. You've got the Wild in a must-win matchup against the Colorado Avalanche. You've got an opportunity to watch D'Angelo Russell play basketball again, although they're without Malik Beasley. Timberwolves are on tonight. Hope you guys had a great Monday. Let's continue this week. Hopefully the weather stays nice. I'll catch you in the next episode. There once was a ship that put to sea. The name of the ship was a belly of tea. The winds blew up her bowed up down oh, below my bully boys blow. Soon may the man come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take a leave and go. She'd not been two weeks from shore When down on her a right whale bore The captain called all hands and swore He'd take the whale in tow Soon may the wellerman come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done We'll take a leave and go da 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 Side harping and fodder when she dived down low. Soon may the willowman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take a leave and go. No line was cut, no whale was freed. The captain's mind was not of greed, and he belonged to the whaleman's creed. She took that ship in tow. Soon may the willowman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take a leave and go.